0: If you have the lovely opportunity to visit Wayne Higby in Alfred, New York in the wintertime, as Watershed Executive Director Fran Rudolph and I did, make sure to wear your boots.
1: And well, now this is a little
0: steep. So you can walk down the hill from Wayne's house to his studio.
1: Oh I'm glad I have my watershed
0: boots on. Which is in a very big barn. It's the oldest dairy barn in Allegheny County. So it's a a real antique. Wayne has worked for decades in this beautiful old barn in a downstairs studio next to where he kept a horse for many years. Riding has been a passion since he was a boy growing up in Colorado. This is my studio, and uh, I love it here. But these days, Wayne spends most of his time in one of the newest buildings in Allegheny County, the Alfred Ceramic Museum at Alfred University, where he is director and chief curator. The museum has a glass facade that opens onto a long ramp, which leads to the second floor. There, on the day we visited, the museum's first ever exhibition was on display. It was called Core Sample, and it offered works by legendary Alfred educators and other ceramic luminaries. One of the first things we saw was a huge pair of worn boots created out of clay and resting on a wooden trunk. It's worked by Tony Hepburn. Tony Hepburn came to Alfred
1: from England, where he was quite well-known at the time as a young hotshot in ceramics. Um, He came here uh, to be... The chairman of the art school, um, and he always had a very rigorous practice as a sculptor, as a ceramic sculptor. And often in his work, he would use mixed media. So for us, he was one of the first individuals in the shop who was using other kinds of materials. So he makes something out of clay, and you know, bring in a piece of wood, or you know, add something to it. And this one. Tells a story. We don't know what the story is. But there's this wonderful, you know, wooden trunk, which is a found object, an antique object. And then these two boots and this thing that's hammer or a pounding implement. And one thing that I always see in this is the drawing. Because I can see this box and the kind of hard edge linear thing. And then I can see the boots, and something about clay and drawing, or clay, ceramic, drawing, painting, is this ability that clay has to reify marks in three dimensions. And in that kind of immediate way one draws, um, it may be the first and foremost material that you would use, where the end result is three-dimensional. You see it in, in uh, Tony's boots and the way they're built, because they're made out of marks of clay, three-dimensional marks of clay. And that same kind of power and energy is in this. So you feel, I think, the energy of this figure and these boots, which would be, as you've experienced today, a very Alfred kind of iconic
0: yeah. <laughs> <laughs> dress code item. <laughs> it's clear from the way Wayne Higby talks about Tony Hepburn's boots that he's been thinking about clay and teaching ceramic artists for many, many years. Wayne's passion for the work in this museum, whether it's by a beloved teacher like Tony Hepburn or John Gill or Robert Turner, a student in the master's program or an ancient pot from Africa, or South America, or Greece, is palpable and contagious. The first exhibition at the Alfred Museum, Wayne says, was intended to reveal some of the extraordinary work in Alfred's own collection. For so
1: long it's been in storage, and parts of it, some things have been seen, some things not seen, there are things in the show that haven't been out of the crate before, (laughs) that have been stored.
0: So many of us who grow up in the the ceramics world look at things that are flat. We look at images of Ah, of these extraordinary pieces. This museum allows your students to actually experience the work as it is in the world rather than on their screen. That
1: is extremely significant because, of course, you know, the... Ceramic shop in Alfred is somewhat legendary, and, um, you know, the shop is full of 80 to 100 students studying ceramics. You know, there are mechanisms for them to visit. We always talk to them about going to York, going to Rochester, going to Buffalo, going to, you know, and we've had a collection which they can make an appointment to see doesn't always happen unless the faculty member makes the appointment to take them there to see it. So we're hoping, and I think this has played out up to this point, um, that they take a little more initiative than just walking across the street because they have the opportunity here to see the real thing in its glorious three-dimensional presence and to study it, you know, to look at it and go back to the studio and come back and come back and look at it. And you're absolutely right, I mean, it happens for all of us. I mean, certainly in my own practice as an artist, I become really familiar with the images of my work because I'm always sending it away or always going to talk about it. And then I will confront one someplace, you know. I'll walk into the Met and see this bowl that they had for three
0: years on display and go, like,
1: whoa, yeah, oh, wow, that's so much better than the image.
0: And it has a presence to it. You know, I I remember looking at Shimon pottery as a student and then going to Japan and actually seeing some in a museum. And it's, it's almost as if the potter was talking to me over these thousands of years.
1: Sometimes I think what happens with the image is a certain, a certain empathy is lost, which I think is what you're talking about. Um, so that the, the, the viewer artist object empathy cycle uh, or just the, just the viewer human hand artist empathy cycle. There's something about that and the way that when you look at it, you can, can reify it in your own identity as a physical being. Um, and that, that piece, it's almost a, a tremulous vulnerability. And then you connect and you feel like, oh,
0: I definitely felt that way as we walked toward a huge, beautiful raccoon bowl, glazed in traditional crackle white, copper blue, and metallic flashing glazes. This was one of Wayne Higby's own iconic bowls, where the glazed shapes evoke imagined landscapes of rocks and water, cliffs and horizon. Walk around it, and suddenly the inside and outside lock together, pulling your eye over the rim of the bowl and down into it, like you're looking out across and into a vast and limitless space, even though the bowl is just about as big around as your shoulders. It's called Mammoth Rock Beach. There's a,
1: um, a series of pieces in my work that are based on kind of the inspirational theme of the coast of Maine, and that's because I've spent so much time there. So in all my 18 or plus years of being on the board of Haystack, and driving to Maine, and going to watershed, and sitting on a rock looking at the horizon line, I always think the easiest way to frame it is just to say, well, it's not about form likeness, it's not meant to replicate the coast of Maine, but it's a mindscape uh, about a kind of threshold And the particular ordering of the landscape there with the grand space and horizon and the kind of uh, gravity of the earth at the shore and the rock. and, And you feel like when you're there in those sites that you're kind of out of time. Someone invites you to forget that you're busy doing something in your everyday life. And the generosity that's provided to sort of you know, be invited across that membrane into this zone and sitting there on the rock. So, you know, my work is kind of partly, if not a great deal, about that invitation to enter that zone. And so, the, you know, the artist statement says something about my work is about a meditation between mind and matter. It's not about landscape. It's not about pictures of your last vacation to the Bahamas. (laughs) It's an invitation to step into that zone. So, you know, the bowl is the you, the me, the figure, the history. It's a very particular shape related to this kind of arc of the iconic nature of the bowl. And then, you know, it's of a scale which is commensurate to the body but then it engenders a spatial condition which is far beyond the measurements of the body. And that's a mindscape, that's, an, that's a kind of imagination. So, you know, it's a summation of the human condition, in a funny way, you know, that we are boundary of gravity as physical beings, but we have this amazing imagination. <laughs> so, boom, I'm there. And I'm very interested in establishing a moment of some kind of silent, I used to call it quiet coherence. Take a break. (laughs) Um, So that sense of it being a kind of zone of the gathering of a kind kind of silent coherence or quiet coherence, and that you're invited to sort of just exhale and enter that imaginary space. And actually ride that fascinating threshold you know or that fascinating balance between the concrete and the imaginative
0: and it's interesting that you've taken as your inspiration a boundary between the concrete and the the, the rocks and the movement of the water hmm. against them
1: you know I used to stare at so often if you're sitting on that rock and you're looking at the Atlantic Ocean And then you're thinking about the horizon. But you think, well, I could go out. If I could just go out there. Then I could slip through that little line. And then you float free and you would have total enlightenment. But then you're meditating on the water. There's a movement. But also you're meditating. Sometimes something about deep. Deep. And very mysterious in some kind of the notion of the sublime. And then you're sitting on the rock, and then you see the water, that deep, deep vastness come to the edge of the rock, and it's a little line. It's just a, it's a wonderful, sharp, smart line where it just the water, all that water comes up against the rock, and that line is like... You know, you just you just want to think about that or stare at that. So there's a lot of line in here, you know, there's a lot of questioning about the vastness of space.
0: There's even a rock in the distance that there's, you get to, that's contemplate. to <laughs> contemplate. That's Isle of the Home. No, I don't know what Isle of that Grand is. is <laughs> yeah Yes, so,
1: something yeah. like that. But it's obviously it's meant to draw you there. Yeah. And and also these pieces have a kind of conceptual question you know, in all of that other, which is kind of endemic to the bowl, and it has to do with inside-outside. And the question really is, is there such a thing as inside-outside? So in some other cosmic um, it's all the same thing. There is no differentiation between inside and outside. So I started playing with this notion of how do you get from this outer surface over the rim to the inner surface and to begin to open up the question of the space as some other kind of holistic piece so that we, you know, we have to think of inside and outside. We think of things in polarities, night and day, things like that. But in some other kind of deeper perception or speculation, those things are kind of um, tools, but they're not at the center
0: and, you know, I'm thinking about the images that you showed us, the, the drawings of shells, which are almost like Mobius strips, you know, that, that, that they also deal with inside-outside. Mm-hmm. And what he's done in two dimensions is draw you in. Mm-hmm. And what you've done here, then, is fuzzied up this idea <laughs> of inside-outside for us, too, in the, the way that you have drawn the rocks, on the inside and outside. There are places
1: here in, in different areas, and you can find them, it's sort of like a treasure hunt, mm-hmm. where the outside will collapse into the inside. So if you're standing back here, and if you're standing about where I'm standing, you can line that
0: yes. image up. Yes.
1: And there, that happens in various places. So, but that's, a, that's another idea about 2D and 3D, and questions of inside and outside. But it's also an experience that I often had, if you're walking on the beach, you know, in Maine, or maybe any beach, but my experience is always, I'm walking with my head down, often, and I'm finding a great rock or a shell or something else, and I'm trying, oh, that's right, look how that tree comes up. And then I'll look up, and the landscape will go, choom, and I'll see, a view. And that, that's another experience of how your mind orders the space. So, I spent a lot of try- time on these particular objects uh, doing the drawing, developing the drawing in the round, and working in a convex and concave situation with the drawing is just a fun thing to try to. Uh, but then to create those moments where those two things happen. You walk around yeah. it, yeah. which is kind of like your journey through space if you're walking in the landscape. And then there are moments of cognition where the landscape becomes a view.
0: I want to ask you, too, you because know, I've seen all of these things on two dimensions and scale. The scale of this is dramatic, and I think from a making point perspective, this is a very big bowl to mm-hmm. create. Mm-hmm. And you've also made a decision to change it from its original round form. <laughs> yes. What, where did that... You notice everything,
1: don't you? It's my job. <laughs> That's it's my knowledge. job. <laughs> what, you know, I must tell you what a pleasure it is to talk to someone who notices all those things. Oh, thank you. You know, because those, those things are known by the artist and they're purposeful for the artist, you know, so... That's that's important.
0: And is it was that part of the inside-outside that if it were a perfect half-sphere it would be different than if you...
1: Well, there's a funny story associated with this if you have the time for the story, but what it really is related to, and of course everything I can share with you about my work is something that I figured out after I've done it, so <laughs> you have to understand that. The work is the journey to trying to understand. So, <laughs> but... What happens with the oval is that it's, it's a shape that's becoming or going. So it's an oval because it's evolving into a circle or it's come out of that tighter geometry and it's evolving into a more fluid shape. So the integration of the surface to the form is the opportunity for that to be a fluid connection resides in the oval for me. Mm -hmm. And so you experience that shape sort of becoming and at the same time it seems somewhat um, flexible. It's, It's arising or it's departing.
0: That it's breathing in a way. I mean, if, uh, I'm picturing a, a circle, you know, a pot on the wheel. And you know it's moving, but you can't really tell because it's perfect. But you put this on a wheel, and suddenly you're moving with it. Yeah. Even if you put it on a, on a pedestal like this, the oval draws me in as a viewer to want to get closer and, and look right. in. You know, I use these dance
1: references, but my studio was all a choreographic playground. And one of the things about that is that if you love to move through space, you know, you just like physical interaction, then the throwing or the building or the moving around in space, and these, these objects are made moving around them, thinking about that, being engaged with your body and in that space in different ways. The size of them is basically this size.
0: It's sort it's, of it's torso, your torso and head. Mm-hmm.
1: Because when you you get within this range it almost meets the border of your peripheral vision. So if you're looking here, you have to look over there and this relationship to your upper body and that zone allows the piece to sort of, for me, connect to the body but also push into that imaginary space. And so this, I've done much smaller ones, and I've done a, a series of small-tile sculpture. They operate similarly but quite differently because they're not bowls.
0: This also feels like it's just on the edge of what you could embrace and pick up. You know, that yes. there's a, there's a <laughs> sense Absolutely. still of... is
1: that's still within your possibility, but that, that arc or distance between your shoulders and your arms It's what's comfortable to move. So you're having that immediate body reference, physical connection to that. But it's at the margins of what that would be.
0: There's also something that just leaped out at me now is that the outside is very smooth, but in the inside I still see, I would assume... The rings of the throwing? The rings of your fingers.
1: Mm -hmm. Sure.
0: This allows me to remember that a, a human being made this. I think that's it.
1: I think that's the important thing. So that you feel something about the touch and the hand and the making, whereas in some other situation, you might be looking at something that was manufactured. And that's a different feeling. So just the vulnerability that's connected to that, signs of the making. And of course, the glazing uh, and the firing is a, is a kind of uh, engendering of... The moment because these things we spend a lot of time drawing and working that out glazing but there's a moment in the firing because they're done through that Raku technique so they're removed from the kill as soon as the glaze is molten and then there's just a moment now and it's it's um, part of the <clears throat> scary pleasure <laughs> of doing this kind of ceramic after investing, and then saying, you know, it's about some other kind of intersection. The stars have to align, and I just am in the in the midst of that alignment. You know, I'm at I'm at in some kind of crossroads, sort of trying to conjure that alignment. But there's no way I can control it or force it to happen. I, the... It's more of um, a dance with all those forces and trying to find a place where you fit into that intersection. Um,
0: And setting up the pieces so that you can enter that moment. I mean, that's not a moment that you can just say, hey, I want to do this today. It's like there were all these steps that you had to take Mm -hmm. to get to the fire.
1: You know, for me, it's almost like the pulling of the raccoot piece. It's almost like... um, Uh, What an example I would think of, Um, you know, I did a lot of theater, I did a lot of dance. So there's this moment before you're on stage, you have to lose yourself in the part, you have to be the character. And then, of course, if you're going to, you know, there's also that energy that you don't know, but you have to give yourself to it. So that's that moment in the wings, where you're going, Whatever your mantra is. (laughs) And you're trying to say, okay, you know, uh, showtime. And then you step through that membrane and. So for me, the raku thing was always like, ooh, you know, I could get there, but I have to give this other thing away. And so there's a moment where you just have to. So you know, you take the phone off the hook and you lock the door and you open the fence, and don't expect to disturb me during this moment. <laughs> the, the, the more detailed explanation of the technique is the, the pieces in the, and it gets to that stage where I decide it must come out. And then I just have a little gang, gang plank on wheels, and I roll my little gang plank up to the door. And I pull the piece out onto the gangplank, and then I pick it up.
0: So the piece is on a kill shelf or something that you yeah. can then drag. Ah.
1: But then I do pick it up by hand. Yeah.
0: And when you pick it up, then do you decide, because I can see there's crackling along in the white glaze along the edge, that sort of traditional white raccoon glaze, but then there are other areas that don't have any kind of crackle either.
1: The, probably the most important technical thing about that is that You're looking at a piece where the the sort of my signature glaze that's orange, you know, green modulated with the the heat and the post-fire reduction material.
0: Right. That you know, are there pieces pieces of straw? You can Mm -hmm. see pieces of
1: straw. That is a intense, high, heavy reduction phenomenon. The blue that you see is an oxidation color, so you're looking at an object which you won't see often.
0: Because it needs two completely different atmospheres. Exactly.
1: <laughs> so in my work, what you'll see is this reduction oxidation. Um, it's it's just you know it's it's a way to get the color that I'm looking for. But the blue is an oxidation phenomenon, and the other one is a reduction phenomenon. So. And that has something to do with the crackle glaze. And you know, of course, the crazing is purposeful, the glaze is formulated, but when the cooling of the glaze and the cooling of, of the f- actual ceramic structure takes place, um, they cool at slightly different rates. And that causes a, a different shrinkage so that the, those crazes appear. But then you see that they have dark lines in them. And that's where those crazes are, or lines, crackles, however you determine that, is uh, receptive to smoke. And so you get that. So anyway, the way, it's very simple. This piece is taken out of the kiln. It's put in the reduction material, and I use straw, damp straw. And then it's left there for, and I can't tell you. It's intuitive, and then I just, grab it, uncover it, grab it, and hold it into the air. At which point, the blue, which otherwise would have been copper red from reduction because it's all about copper, is cleared. Oxygen rushes into it, clears that, and it becomes an oxidized blue color. At that point, the whole object is cooled enough so that color's not going to change back. But it also, that moment in the air, helps to create the crackle. Then the whole piece is buried again in the post-fire reduction material. And it smokes in a gentle fashion until I think it's cool enough to take out. But those are technical things about how the glazes are formulated so that the heavy reduction cycle in this one is, is matched to a, to a certain temperature ratio. So when it's, at that point, held into the air, it's already cool enough so that the reduction material is established. But the blue glaze is still vulnerable to the oxygen. So you have to have two sides of your brain. You know, there's a part of your brain that's just like kind of a chemist or something, or just a strategist, technically. And then, you know, something else. So that's. That's one of the joys of ceramics, I think. Um, and those of us who practice this game are interested in two sides of the brain, those two sides. And, you know, I would, I would certainly admit that I'm kind of a, a skill junkie, I'm a craft junkie, because just the skill thing turns me on. you know. I don't need all that skill. You know, you only need as much as you need. So what are you shooting for? So, you know, you have these, these pieces that we see all the time, which are really, as John Gill would say, they've been executed.
0: <laughs> they're so, In both senses of the word. <laughs> they're, they're so
1: skillfully made that they really lack any interest. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but they're performance pieces. So, but you know, I love the skill, I love the skill of, the th- of the, you know, throwing, or just as a younger artist, just try to throw something big. It's this reification of the self. It's sort of say, gee, every day I get a little better at doing something. That's good. And then you meet the wall, you know, where you can probably make anything you can think of, and that's not the point. So those little navigations become very important in terms of how the work evolves and how you begin to suss out the work and how it starts to tell you what's necessary.
0: I loved hearing Wayne talk about his process, and it was clear that this approach informs all of his work, whether he's pulling a raccoon bowl out of a red-hot kiln or creating 6,000 handmade porcelain tiles for the largest installation of hand-cut porcelain in the world, Earthcloud. That work covers the walls of the Miller Performing Arts Center, just up the hill from the Alfred Ceramic Museum. The center is housed in two large brick buildings cut into the steep slope, with enormous glass windows that face each other across a swath of grass and snow. Earth Cloud spans both buildings. When you're in one, you glimpse the beautiful celadon tiles in the other, some touched with a bit of gold. Some of the tiles are angled and smooth, the celadon glaze reflecting the sunlight. Others have been broken and protrude from the wall in tumbled angles, rough surfaces smoothed and the glaze softened and matte. As you walk through the building, everything shifts. The light changes, tiles catch your eye in new ways, like watching clouds shift and change as the wind catches them and the sun peeks out. As the first building in the Performing Arts Centre was going up, Marlon Miller, the benefactor who supported the construction, an Alfred alum who collected Wayne's work, asked Wayne if he wanted to create an installation for the two-story wall at the entrance to the Black Box Theater. To get to the theater, you have to walk down a long set of wide stairs from the building's entrance, and the wall is more than 30 feet high. Wayne says that Marlon Miller encouraged him to unleash his imagination as he approached the challenge of creating something specifically for this space. You know, the the wonderful, amazing thing
1: is this man is so generous and so supportive, you know he will give you the courage to do something you never thought you could do but also he will say to you what do you need there's no time limit there's no constraint there's just, you know, think of something, you want to do it let's figure out how you do it, what do you need so there was never this thing that you know, you had to hurry up or you had to make up your mind, or you had to fit it in some kind of really stringent budget conditions. So he just empowered me to unleash my imagination, so to speak, to work back and forth between the designer side of me and the artist side of me. And I love this idea of the problem that you get if you're a designer. You know, if you're a designer, you get the problem. You can accept it or not. And as the artist, you kind of make up the problem but then you have to become the designer to solve it. And if you're the designer, you get the problem, but then you have to become the artist to solve it. So this, you know, is sort of say there. Well, they're conditions, you know. So how does the, the, the building, the design, the architect's vision, how do you, you know, connect to that, relate to that? So that your piece feels like it's born out of the architecture and the building and the space and the place. And so the way it started is I just kept sitting on these steps that you see here. And I'd come in between classes or at the end of the day and I'd just sit on these steps and just see if an idea came. And I inevitably wound up looking out the windows. And you look at brick and brick grids. And then as you go down these steps, what happened is that the sky comes up so it's very interesting, as you go down, all of a sudden you're more and more looking at sky. So you're going down, but then your relationship to the landscape is shifting. And of course, there, there would be clouds and they'd come up in the window. And then I'd think, hmm, outside, inside, can you do, can I make clouds? Can I? This cloud kept coming back, so that became this challenge. And actually, the title for the piece came almost instantly when I started thinking about that. And I kept saying "Earth Cloud," Earth Cloud. So I could make this piece out of porcelain, which I had begun to experiment with based on my adventures in China and Jingdezhen in particular. And so I just started doing drawings. Thousands of drawings, marks on paper, on placements at the Collegiate. Thousands of drawings. Trying to think of how could you engender the effect. You know, it's not again about form likeness. It's about some kind of mindscape. So connecting inside to outside, the shapes became a kind of echo of these windows and the geometry in the building, and then all these cuts of the of the. Um, Porcelain tile. I turned my studio into a kind of folk art brick factory. <laughs> and we just extruded blocks that were cut into bricks. And then I would cut the bricks up and then stick parts of what I'd cut off back on. And eventually I came up with, I think there are four or five different kinds of cuts. And my theory about that was just that that would, would break up the way it absorbed light. And by breaking up this notion of how light fell on it, I might be able to reverse the effect of the weight and engender something more atmospheric. And so that's where all those cuts kind of come from. The celadon glaze is is a glaze I invented. It's an echo of a traditional celadon. And it was really a kind of homage to uh, Jingdezhen uh, because it's that color and uh, to my friends and to my experiences there. The small tile, which I just call field tile, um, but you see that it's shiny and very reflective. And then you see that the other cuts, the heavier cuts are matte. The heavier cuts are all sandblasted.
0: Ah, I was wondering about that. So
1: the idea behind that was also to to soften them and so the light falling on them and a little bit of the shadow and the softness, but to have that kind of contextualized by the reflectiveness of the other. And then the rhythm that you see in those tiles, what I call the field tile, are about the steps yeah. and going down and as you go down, this thing coming up and then you're feeling in your own body a kind of connection to the rhythm of how that's working.
0: And that this piece, which is inset, reveals itself as you're walking down. Yes, and there's a
1: spot here, you know, like on the poles, where that far inset is connected to the final row. Yes. And you can find that zone.
0: And you say these are cut, but are they broken? They look less... Basically,
1: so if I had a brick Uh and I did all of this, both sides, with a paint scraper. And you just sharpen the here and you go, chunk, and a piece falls off and you go, oh, stick it on sideways. Yeah. Or then you say, no, break that edge, it's too much. And then they just kind of come together that way. Um, some of them have a white glaze on them and that was obviously purposeful. Once I had decided on the celadon, I wanted to have a slight differentiation of the larger cut and then have it play with light. This is kind of a good example. It's really playing with the light up there dancing with the light uh, and the shadows and the darks, which, you know, there's 20,000 pounds of porcelain on this wall.
0: Oh, my God. (laughs) (laughs) And how many
1: people hours? I don't know. I cut everything you see here myself. I had an assistant who helped me glaze and fire, and the whole arc of the project, because there were some other incidences in my life, I got to about, I could make six-by-six-foot section in my studio. So I had to keep it in my head where I was going, and I can remember. But about a third of this was done, and my wife became extremely ill with ovarian cancer. She passed somewhere in there a year later. I stopped cutting. I, I just, I stopped. She was very insistent that everything just stay as normal, so she was upset with me. I couldn't get to the studio. She said, you have to go to work to come back, you know. Anyway, so all that was just a, a little bit of a sidestep from this arc of the piece, but probably the arc of the piece is around 10 years. So this piece was finished in, 2006 I installed it, so I started playing with it in 2002. She became really sick in 2004, and there was a period there where I wasn't working. <laughs> I couldn't go back to where it was so really funny. And <clears throat> finally one day, it was good, this project rescued me. Because it was, you know, in the works, it was happening, and I thought, oh, I have to finish the project, and So she and I had a little conversation. She was no longer there with me physically. But I took this picture of her in the house and I went down and I hung it over the studio table and I said, okay, we're doing this. We're finishing this, right? Which, you know that's what she wanted me to do. It was just one of those moments. So the piece actually allowed me to bridge that turbulent time and put me back in the studio and, okay.
0: It feels like the story of your wife and the loss is embedded in here. And do you find that there's a part of it that's in the porcelain itself? The piece, you know,
1: she's, well, she's kind of always with me, But um, and uh, the piece has that memory in it. But it's not, um, it's not a morbid memory. It's not no. morose. It's a great teaching. You know, my wife uh, and that experience well, I always think of her maybe a bit as an avatar, you know, someone who is here to teach you something. And the learning curve is very steep, and the teaching is very deep and profound. And then you have been given the gift of that teaching which is the only way I could sort of square it with the trauma and to sort of accept it, you know, now as a gift of a kind of teaching that I was privileged to learn and that she was my most important teacher. And her courage and, you know, these stories about, you know, we weren't the only couple who's ever gone through that or what, you know, this is is a very common story. And the teaching is a remarkable one. And I'm always amazed at the courage that you find when someone is, you know, given that struggle. But the confirmation of my Buddhist practice is embedded in that teaching because I really needed to navigate it and to find a way to navigate it. There was something in my work as an artist that could be traced to that. This experience with material and the sort of rise of the interconnectedness between well we talked about the bowl and the clay and me and the artist and the thing and the fire and that moment where you're looking for in the fire to get in the zone between. Those are all things that are already in my personal feelings about work and in the work. So I think through that teaching they became slightly more codified within a kind of Buddhist ideology that began to really have meaning to me. And the cloud is part of that in the sense that the cloud is, in Buddhist practice, it's kind of a meditation device. That iconography is about impermanence. And so earth cloud is a kind of celebration in part of the poetry and the glory of impermanence.
0: Wayne Higby and Fran Rudolph and I spent a few more minutes gazing at the light as it swept across earth cloud, and then we laced up our boots again to crunch through the snow in a field near Wayne's house and barn. We walked toward a blue teahouse that Wayne and his wife Donna had designed together, overlooking a small pond oh it's so lovely so what inspired that well
1: my wife and i there's a little high spot there and ever since we had purchased the house we had thought a little bit about building a gazebo or just a little place where you could have a little picnic lunch or something but when she got very sick you know, with was Kemo, it was then all. And I said one day to her, I said, um, Why don't we build the tea house? Do you wanna do that? We have a project. And you can you can design it and draw it and then we can figure out how to build it and we can she didn't see it completely finished, but she did see it pretty much the way it looks now. It wasn't painted yet and But I have pictures of her standing there. So it was really, you know, we went and found these old windows one day when she wasn't feeling too bad. And it was kind of designed around those. There's some stained glass windows that she and I had collected. And I usually, you know, do a kind of walking meditation around the pond. And then uh, I have books in there I often read over there. And then sometimes <laughs> sometimes I have what's called open art surgery with a student. I said, So, why don't you just come out and we'll sit in the tea house and have a cup of tea? And the student said, Don't have a go to the tea house. <laughs> 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 <Rainboard
0: shed.
1: laughs> you'll, com- you'll have a long conversation, which is like you will, you will be transformed. <laughs> so <laughs> sometimes it's a wonderful place to have a really more lengthy, wonderful conversation. It's all, it's all uh, piped with propane, so I have a little stove thing in there. And so I can make, you know, anyone a cup of tea and sit and have a conversation. It's very nice.
0: At the end of a long and lovely day, after talking about his art and his family and the new museum, Wayne talked a little about what has been at the center of his work for more than four decades, his role as a teacher. At Alfred, Wayne has taught generations of ceramic artists, many of whom consider him a cherished mentor.
1: All I do when I teach is witness.
0: I just witness.
1: But I found, I think what's important is for a student, particularly a gifted student, but any student, to recognize that someone is witnessing their gift. And that's just a conversation. I stopped by your studio you know, we didn't make an appointment, but I stopped by your studio. Just, you know, I noticed something. Or if I make an appointment or spend an hour with you, I don't have any answers. But we can have the conversation. So it's, you know, in the, in the art, you can teach certain things about materials and techniques and, you know, bring in the data and how not to blow yourself off at the kiln. <laughs> but the real teaching is just a kind of witnessing and if you're a savvy teacher you have a sense of that witnessing for the particular student you're working with it's not generalized but it's very individual which takes a determined commitment to that and and love in the doing, you know, love is one of those sensitive words, but.
0: it's a good one.
1: Love in the doing it, because it's so rewarding and so powerful, you know, when things, and as I, you know, it's like water, and you've witnessed something, and you were there at one point, you know, as a witness. And I think there are certain points in, in, in my life, and in, you know, I think the students I work with, where a certain kind of witnessing at that moment was really huge. And then it fades into the background, but mm-hmm. when you think back at it, you know, you say,
0: hmm. I'm hearing another piece too, which is, and you've said this a couple of times, the slowing down in order to pay attention.
1: Mm. Isn't that true? But what a luxury. You know, if you could just give yourself that luxury, and Quite frankly, we all have time to do that. Yeah. Are you okay? Don't you just want to hear the sound of crunching? Yeah, let's crunch.
0: What a gift it was to spend a winter's day witnessing Wayne Higby's art as a teacher, a curator, and an artist. For his contribution to the field of ceramics, Wayne Higby was honored as a watershed legend in 2017. He continues to create and teach and oversee the new ceramics museum at Alfred University. And you can find out more about Wayne and his work at alfredceramics.com. Conversations with Legends are a production of the Watershed Center for the Ceramic Arts. Learn more about Watershed at watershedceramics.org. This conversation is supported in part by an award from the National Endowment for the Arts on the web at arts.gov. I'm Julie Burstein. Thank you so much for listening.